I'm glad you're here as we're continuing our teaching series through the Gospel of Mark. And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 2. If you've been here for the last couple Sundays, you know we're, we're kind of at a pivotal point in the book of Mark. The disciples have been with Jesus for about three years now. Jesus asks them the million dollar question in Mark chapter 8. Who do you say that I am? And they say you're the Messiah. The problem is what they think of as Messiah is not at all what Jesus has in mind as Messiah. Come to seek and to save. They think uh, Messiah like what he's going to do in his second coming. Come to rule and to reign. And so they are at cross purposes. They're at cross purposes. See what I did there? And so now things are quite frankly awkward. There is tension. Uh, they're, um, uh, they're not really sure how, I, 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 the disciples are not really sure what to make of this. We're going to Jerusalem? We're going to die? I mean, you've got all this power, you can do all these miracles, and now you're going to go and suffer and die? Have we been following Jesus for nothing? Has this been a mistake? This awkward silence, Mark tells us, goes on for six, count them, six days. You don't see that a lot in Mark, where he records time periods of what didn't happen. And here it is in, in verse 2. You can see it. After six days, this goes on. Can you imagine things are tense? I mean, it's got to be sad for the disciples. Maybe we've messed up. I mean, we're following Jesus. We just don't really like where he's going. We don't understand. Our closeness to Jesus is thrown off. Let me ask you, anybody ever, anybody ever feel that way? You feel like you've, you've, you, you're kind of on this journey and you're following Jesus. To be honest, you're just not sure you like the destination. You're not sure... Maybe it's been a while since you felt that closeness to God. And Jesus, I mean, how, how, what did it feel like to be Jesus? It's got to be some of the saddest days of his ministry. He just needs a friend. And nobody understands his mission. Nobody understands that he's come to give his life. He's come to die. And going to Jerusalem is part of the plan. The disciples want him to get the crown without the cross. They want him to get the glory without the suffering. And nobody's willing to stand with him. We've got to do something about this. And so what does he do? He takes him up the mountain. A little prayer retreat. He takes him up the mountain. I can't help but uh, preach on the Mount of Transfiguration. I can't help but think about all those many summers, delightful summers I spent doing youth ministry at summer camps. Anybody ever go to church camp when you're a kid? You guys know what I'm talking about with the spiritual mountaintop experience? Don't tell me I'm alone on this. A couple weeks before camp starts... You're in a rut spiritually. You don't feel very close to God. You don't feel that connection. Oh, but then you go to youth camp. And I mean, Monday, you're on that van, and you're heading out. And uh, two, by Tuesday, you're starting to hang out with other Christians, and you're listening to the scriptures, and you're paying attention, and you're away from your phone. And by Wednesday night, you can't tell if it's the Holy Spirit or gas. You haven't been eating real good, but something is happening inside, you know, and you're, and you're just, oh, you're so excited. By Thursday night at youth camp, man, I've done, I've been, I've seen it. You can give an invitation. I don't mean anything. If you're wearing blue jeans, you're crying. I'm wearing blue jeans, right? You know, anything. By Thursday night at youth camp, you're so fired up. I want to go back. I, Jesus is Lord. I never want to sin again. I want to go to my home church, do a backflip off the balcony and clothesline the devil. Let's go. You get on the church, man, you go home and two weeks later, well, that was fun. But now it's, I mean, I don't know if you smoke, but you know, you're back to your old ways, you're back to your old life, you know, whatever, back down. Why did God, why does God do that? Why does God pull you up on that mountain? Could it be? Could it be? That it's not so much for what happens that week, 
And this is what I, I used to tell young people on the last day when we were sending them home. I would tell them, uh, he showed you himself on the mountain for when you go through the valley. Does that make sense? He wants to give you a little glimpse of what he's really like. You know, uh, it's not how high you soar when you're on the mountaintop that counts. It's how straight you walk when you come back down. And I believe what he does here. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And what happens next is one of the most famous moments in the life of Jesus Christ. Everybody who's ever been in Sunday school, if you've been around church, you know that there's a baptism of Jesus, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and the second coming, and this big moment. And it's called the transfiguration. Here's how Mark describes it. This is all the details you get. And he was transfigured before them. And you're like, come on, Mark, seriously? Give me a little something. I mean, the Mount, how many of you heard of the Mount of Transfiguration? You heard of this, right? It's a big moment in the life of Christ. This is the Transfiguration. What? I ask you, theologically, unpack that. What does the Transfiguration mean? Mark says, here's exactly what it means. It means, and I quote, he was transfigured. Good luck. To which you're like, are you kidding me? And Matthew and Luke are like, we do this all the time. We got this. We got this. We'll explain Mark. So you go to Matthew and Luke, and they give you a little bit more details. But Mark just throws it out there. He was transfigured. Essentially what's happening is this. Jesus' outward appearance, his visage, his countenance, his outward appearance. See, inside he's the same Jesus. He's got the glory, but it's been veiled. It's been veiled. And he pulls back the veil a little bit. And he lets them see outwardly, and, and, and other gospel writers describe it as, you know, blinding, dazzling, like the sun, this radiant, but this is coming from within. This is a supernatural, uh, bright light, like, like glory, and Jesus is showing them the glory that he's always had. It's just been veiled. He is uh, showing them. In fact, there's a Christmas hymn, uh, a Christmas song we sing, um, uh, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Christ the incarnate deity. Could have picked a lower key. There's no one else singing. It's only me. I don't know why I did. Christ the incarnate deity. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Christ the incarnate deity. Do you understand? In other words, Jesus has had the glory, but it's been veiled. Here, he lifts the veil. And Mark struggles for words. His clothes became radiant. And Peter's describing all this to him. Well, describe it. I'm I'm writing the gospel, Peter. What do you want to say? Well, it was like radiant. Well, like, like, what does that mean? It means like, like white. Like, describe white. Intensely white. What do you want? I'm a fisherman, not a scholar. Intensely white. And then Mark adds. He's the only gospel writer who adds this next part. Mark's the only one. I don't know if he had a bad experience at the cleaners or what. But he feels the need to throw this little punch as no one on earth could bleach them. To which all of Mark's cleaners throughout his life were like, what, what, why? Why do you? At any rate, his point is this is not a natural bleaching. This is not something that could happen naturally. This is something that can only happen supernaturally. Imagine horizontal lightning coming right at you. Blinding light. Now, what's going on here? What do we do with the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, let's back up. This is not the first time God has brought people up on a mountain to meet with him. Most famous is Moses. Moses wants to meet with God. God says, yeah, that can't happen. To use an electric electrician metaphor uh moses if you saw all of me it would overload your circuits okay this would blow your little human 
fuse. You would explode. You can't take me in. So here's what I will do. He says in Exodus 30, 20, Exodus 30, somewhere in the back half of Exodus, he says, uh, I wrote it down. He says, no one can, that's going to In Exodus 33, verse 20, he says, no one can look upon me and live. No one can see God and live. This is going to overload your circuits. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put you in this little crevice in the rock. Then I'm going to cover you there with my hand, and then I'm going to pass by. But even then, it would be too much if I, if I passed by full on and you saw my face. So you'll see my back, and as I pass by, and that was enough glory that when he came down the mountain, he was reflecting glory. But he, that was reflected glory. This came from within. So, he, so, so Moses got to sort of partially kind of, you might say, see a little bit of God, but nowhere close to the full thing. There was another guy in the Old Testament who got to go up a mountain, Elijah, and he didn't get to see God. He got to hear him. And God wasn't in the whirlwind. He wasn't in all the flash and pizzazz and the storms and the lightning. He was in the still, small voice, and he heard him. So he, he, he didn't get to see him. He got to hear him. And now Jesus brings Peter, James, and John up the mountain, and reveals this, uh, this, this glory. What's going on here? Well, let me pause and give credit where I think credit is due. There's a pastor named Colin Smith. That uh, I, Great, I've learned so much uh, from this guy. He's a scholar. Still around. You can Google his sermons. I believe his teaching on the transfiguration, it's like the, the light bulb went off for me. And uh, uh, it made so much sense. And so his outline, this is his, I'm using his outline today. That's how much I thought of his message on the transfiguration. So if you want to Google and see how he treats this text, um, uh, uh, I highly recommend him to you. He says what's happening here, and I completely agree with him, is that the Mount of Transfiguration, the point is this. Jesus is giving Peter, James, and John a glimpse into the future of what he's physically going to look like after his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. We say it again. He's allowing Peter, James, and John to peer into the future. And this is a glimpse of what he's going to look like physically in the future. Now, I don't know how many of you, if you were offered that chance, that you have a chance to see yourself, here's what you physically look like 20 years in the future. Uh, You might decline that offer. Uh, (laughs) The years are not usually kind. But for Jesus, he wants them to see, this is what I, remember what you're seeing here. This is a glimpse into the future. This is a sneak peek because you, Peter, James, John, you, we're going to Jerusalem and, 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 and we're going to be uh, 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 persecuted and you need to know on the other side of Jerusalem, on the other side of the resurrection, on the other side of the cross, this is what I'm going to look like. After the cross comes the glory. And you need to see it. You need this glimpse in the future. Why do I say this is a glimpse of what Jesus looks like in the future? A couple things. Psalm 104 verses 1 and 2 describe him this way. That God, it says of God, God is clothed in garments of light. And in John, in the last book of the Bible, John wrote the book of Revelation. In the last book of the Bible, in Revelation, when John sees Jesus, he describes him in almost these exact same terms. It says that I fell at my, I fell at his feet. I, I fell flat on my face. Why? Because I couldn't look on him. His face was shining like the sun, it says in the first chapter of John. Here And here we get to see it. Jesus always had this glory from eternity past. He shared this glory with God. He just kept it hidden until this moment. Why? He needed his disciples to see what's coming. Listen, y'all, this is a word for us in 2020. He's telling his disciples, we're about to go to Jerusalem. 
and some stuff is going to go down. Some stuff is going to happen that's going to be so bad, it's going to make you want to turn and quit. You are going to want to lose the faith, and I need you to keep the faith. I want you to keep the faith. I want you to be strong. We're going we're gonna to be persecuted, and then we're going to be crucified. Look at this face. See how it is radiant? See how I'm shining upon you with all this glory? This is what's coming, because there's coming a day in Jerusalem where, according to Isaiah 53, to look upon the face of the one who was beaten, spit upon, slapped, mocked, crown of thorns, by the time they were through with him, according to Isaiah's prophecy, you could barely even recognize it was Jesus. You could barely even recognize he was human. So when you see that in the valley, you need to remember this on the mountain. There is coming a day. This is a reality. I came once, Jesus is saying, I'm coming as a humble Savior. But you need to remember, Peter, James, John, this is going to put steel in your backbones. This is going to give you faith in your darkest hour. I'm giving you this gift right now. You're able to see me in my glory so that you remember you do not serve a weakened, killed Messiah, but a risen and anointed and ascended king. I'm the king of kings. This is, this is where this thing's going. And if you're going to take up your cross and follow Jesus, you need the transfiguration. And do we not need a glimpse of the future to help us in the now? Do we not? I mean, is this not for us? Imagine being a missionary right now in Central Asia. Imagine being a missionary in Southeast Asia. Imagine you're, you're surrounded in the Middle East, perhaps. You're surrounded by, by, by folks that don't yet, they, they reject Jesus. They don't yet believe in him. And you're surrounded not just by a few of them, but by millions. And it looks like things will never change. And you lose hope. What does that missionary need? They need a vision that Christ will be glorified. He came once as a little baby in a manger, and he came to suffer and die. On his second coming, his return, which is soon, no one will miss it. He will split the sky, the trumpet will sound, and he will come as king of kings. He will establish his kingdom, and it will know no end. Christ will be glorified. Do you remember that hymn, This is My Father's World? Remember that one? This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. We need this. We need a glimpse of what's coming. How about you? How's your glimpse of the future? Do you still believe with all your heart that Christ shall be glorified? The lamb will receive the reward of his suffering. The battle is not done. He's coming. He's coming soon. And he shall be satisfied. Christ will be glorified. So before you face the cross, he's telling his disciples, behold the glory. And for those of you that are trusting with all you got, you're, you're holding on to the word of God, oh, over here, but over here you got the news. You got the word of God over here, but you also got your friend who's going through that addiction. You got the word of God over here, but you got a crumbling marriage over here. You got a word of God over here, but you got a, a health situation looks like it's never going to end over here. You have got to get what the disciples got on that mountain. You've got to get a glimpse of the coming glory to help you in your current crisis. Christ shall be glorified. But not only that, look who shares in his glory. First point is Christ shall be glorified, if you missed it. He will be glorified. That's what the transfiguration teaches us. Secondly, teaches us that men and women will share in that glory. 
Look at that. Look at verse 4. Look who shares in his glory. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. <laughs> Talk about like the ultimate Bible conference of all time. Uh, I have an Old Testament question. Moses is like, I wrote it. Jesus is like, well, technically. Here you got these guys. They're talking together. Why Elijah and Moses? Several things, several things. Remember what I said earlier. Um, in the Old Testament, there's a couple characters that got to go up a mountain and meet with God, so Moses and Elijah. So it's interesting that, 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 that they're here. The other thing is, and this fascinated the early Jewish scholars, a lot of the debate is lost to us. We don't, we don't understand what they were fighting about necessarily. But, um, but two Old Testament characters, they were fascinated with the way they died. And it's these two. It's Moses and Elijah. Elijah, you may know. Elijah, remember, he never physically died. He was carried up with a chariot, right? Swing low, sweet chariot, coming forward to carry me home. Remember that? That's, that's about Elijah. The chariot comes and scoops him up. And so there was all this mystery and legend surrounding Elijah. That's why they're always fascinated. Like, Elijah comes first, and maybe Elijah's like hanging out in some other dimension, and he like appears. Uh, the other was Moses. <sighs> Moses died, but if you, if you read Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, we think Moses wrote them. So Moses had to like write the story of his own death. And it ends kind of cryptically at the end of, at the last chapter of Deuteronomy, it says that um, he goes up to the mountain, he talks with God. He's not able to go into the promised land, but he talks with God, and, he, um, uh, and God buries him. God buried Moses. And so there's all this mystery we don't know. And if you, <laughs> there's this like random verse in Jude where Jude is using it to illustrate something, and he's like, well, you know how it is. You know why you shouldn't blaspheme. Remember when the archangel Michael was getting in a fight with Satan over the body of Moses? And everybody's like, yeah. Wait, wait, what? No, I'm not, what? <laughs> anyway, so he just like throws it in there. So there's all this debate and everything. Uh, we, don't under, we don't necessarily know what the circumstances were around it. More than that, Moses and Elijah would have represented um, the... Uh, Moses represents the Torah, the law. Elijah was a prophet. So here you have the law and the prophets testifying to Jesus, which is what Jesus has been trying to say all along, that the law and the prophets testify to me, that I'm not out of the blue. I'm out of the blueprint. Okay, this was in the plan. And here you have the law and the prophets together. I think it also shows how Jesus outshines and fulfills the law and the prophets. And it's almost like Moses got to see a little bit of God, Elijah a little bit. So they had partial revelation in the Old Testament. The full revelation of God comes in the New Testament in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He fulfills the law and the prophets. So there's some symbolism there. But, but, but they're talking about something. Now, what, wouldn't you love to know what they're talking about? I happen to know exactly what they're talking about. You say, how do you know what they were talking about? Because I cheated and looked in Luke where he tells us what they were talking about. Luke's gospel, let's turn to Luke's gospel. In Luke 9, uh, 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 he says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, we'll come back to that, and spoke of, here's what they were talking about, they spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In other words, of all the things Moses and Elijah wanted to talk to Jesus about, they wanted to talk about what he was about to do at Jerusalem. They wanted to talk about how the Messiah was coming to stretch out his arms on an old rugged cross, and for Moses' salvation and Elijah's salvation, he was going to stretch out his arms. They were going to pierce his hands, pierce his feet. He was going to hang there and bleed and die. 
bleed and die for the, for the sins of the world. God poured out his wrath on Jesus. Paul says it this way, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. And Moses and Elijah, throughout, I mean Moses of all people, the whole thing is about the law, the law. This is, this is what we've done. God is so holy, you can't even look upon him and we've fallen short. Humans can offer sacrifices, but they're never enough. But somehow, God forgives sinful humans. And he went to his grave, not knowing how exactly that could happen. And Elijah prophesied, you, you, you're wicked, God is holy, but if you repent, he forgives. And for the life of me, I can't figure out how a holy God can forgive sin. Until they meet Jesus. And then it all makes sense. He's, he's the sacrifice that God himself provided. God himself provided a lamb. And in this way, sinful humans can be forgiven by the ultimate sacrifice. And they want to unpack that. They want to talk more and more because this is what the whole Old Testament points to. Every page of the Old Testament whispers his name. And so they're just telling Jesus, I think, tell it again, tell it again. Tell, tell of the cross where they nailed him, the old hymn says, writhing in anguish and pain. Tell of the grave where they laid him. Tell how he liveth again. Love in that story so tender, clearer than ever I see. Stay, let me weep while you whisper, love paid the ransom for me. They wanted to hear it again and again and again. Because they knew that the death of the spotless, sinless Messiah of God was their ticket in. I want you to consider that they shared his glory. Um, that's an interesting verse right there. Who appeared in glory. Uh, that who appeared in glory. That's talking about Moses and Elijah. Christ shall be glorified. But watch this. Christ wants to share his glory with men and women. Now, 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 these were extraordinary men. But they were just men. They were sinful. Right? Moses has sin in his life. Elijah, do you remember Elijah? He gets so discouraged, he wants to give up on God. He just, I'm ready to throw in the towel. Moses, I mean, like, on his record, you do realize Moses has a murder rap, right? Like, you know that. Like, Moses was chosen to get the children out of Egypt into the promised land, but he would not be hired on staff here at your church. You understand that, right? You can't slip that past the personnel committee. Well, your knowledge of the Bible is impressive, Moses. It's as if you wrote it. <laughs> but it says here you murdered someone. That's going to be a red flag for some of our parents, right? <laughs> right? You understand? And yet, and yet, here he is sharing in the glory of the future. Okay. There are some conclusions we need to draw, I think, from this. The future, the glimpse of the future, Christ will be glorified. But this tells you something about your future and my future. And I don't want you to miss it. If you're a note taker, write down some things. We can, we can draw absolute conclusions from this. The first is this. Very important. Your identity does not end at death. This is a fundamental principle in the Bible. Your identity does not end at death. Elijah, long after he's dead and gone, Elijah is still Elijah. Moses is still Moses. There's no reincarnation. There's no, they're back in another form. There's no angel wings. I'm sorry, Clarence. That's not how it works. Uh, you don't ring a bell and Moses gets some wings. You know, oh, God got another angel. No, no, not in the Bible. Uh, you understand? Moses still Moses. Elijah is still Elijah. Listen to me. When God created you, he created you for eternity. There will never be a time when you cease to be. Listen to me carefully. 
There will never be a time when you cease to exist. For all eternity, you will be you. The only thing that changes at death is your address. And that address, listen to me, is changed permanently. There is continuity between this life and eternity. Your identity, your relationship with God continues uninterrupted into the next life. For those who are blood-bought, born-again believers, your relationship with God is currently one of faith, dependence, and love. Your, your relationship to God for all eternity will be marked by faith, dependence, and love. If you are in rebellion against God and you are rejecting the free offer of the only begotten Son, if you are rejecting the plan of salvation, your relationship to God for all eternity will be marked by rejection and rebellion. There's a little uh, verse in Ecclesiastes 11.3 that says, In the place where the tree falls, that's where it lies. That's a picture of eternity. How you relate to God right now. What is your identity? Are you a blood-bought, born-again child of God? Then when you die, to be absent from the body will be to be present with the Lord. If not, it'll be forever absent from the Lord. But listen, that should either bring you great comfort or tremendous terror. That's what the Word of God is supposed to do. It cuts like a two-edged sword. That, that's exactly what it's supposed to do. And if it brings you great comfort, then, that, then the transfiguration is doing for you what it's supposed to do for the disciples. Give you a glimpse to the future. Give you courage. Put hope in you. And if that shakes you to your core because you realize you are right now in rebellion to God, get right with God today. Do not delay. There is no need to delay. He has made a way for every man, woman, boy, and girl to have this identity for all eternity with him. But your identity does not end at death. Another thing you might want to note about your future, and people ask me this sometimes about heaven, you need to know you will be known and recognized. You will be known and recognized. People ask me sometimes, uh, preacher, will we know each other in heaven? Um, absolutely, yes. You say, Where do you get that in the Bible? Because of the transfiguration, neither Moses nor Elijah had a name tag. Peter just knows it's them. These guys have been gone thousand-something years. That's Moses. That's Elijah. You will we will absolutely be recognized. We will absolutely know one another in new heaven, new earth for all eternity. Some of you, I hope this brings you great comfort to know that you're not floating off into heaven as some disembodied, you know, spirit creature or something with angel wings. And, you know, no, 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 no. Your identity continues and you'll know each other. And best of all, uh, you will know their face and their name at the same time. Do some of you struggle with that here on this side of glory? Like you can place the face, right? But you can't remember their name. And let's just real talk for just a few seconds, real talk. There's coming a day where you will immediately know their name and their face, and you'll never forget a name. And some of you are so embarrassed because you've been worshiping right next to your brother or sister in Christ for so many years, you can never tell them that you have no idea their name. And I know your plan, not to rat you out, but I know you're literally waiting for glory at this point because you realize that's your best shot. If someone turns to you right now and is like, listen, I'm, it's me, then don't take offense. You'll, your identity continues. Uh, also, I know we'll know each other in heaven, not just because of this amount of transfiguration, but because God did not go to all these links. God did not go to all this work to 
to gather for himself a family, to unite and to take hostility and walls of hostility and to tear down walls of racism and elitist mentality and classism and, and all this. He didn't, and, and he didn't do all this work to gather together so that in eternity we could drift apart and be alienated. Just the opposite. God gave us the church so we could practice love for an eternity of fellowship. Why? Alienation and unraveling, that's sin. That, that's the result of sin. Gathering together, community, fellowship, that has the mark of God. See, Your identity continues, you'll be known and recognized, and it's possible to share Christ's glory after death. Look at that. Who appeared in glory. For, uh, Second Thessalonians puts it this way. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus. Have you considered that? Have you pondered that? After you've served Christ faithfully, you, God's called you to share in his glory. He's looking at Peter, James, and John. Peter, you're going to be crucified. James, you're going to be brutally murdered. And John, you're going to be exiled. And uh, uh, you're going to suffer. And then you're going to die. So hold fast to this vision. After the suffering comes the glorification. And just one more uh, word about this before we get back to the, uh, we got to bring this to a close by getting back to the action in uh, uh, Mark 9. But um, one more thing that always strikes me. Um, is uh, M Moses. Moses, at the Mount of Transfiguration, um, best I can tell, is enjoying his first ever trip to the Holy Land. Because remember, he didn't get in the first time, did he? Uh, because of why? Because of sin in his own life. Follow me now. Because of sin, he got all the way to the Jordan River. And God allowed him to look at the promised land that he longed for. But he couldn't go in because of sin. Follow the logic. Because of sin, he couldn't get into the promised land. But when he was with Jesus, come on home. What sin keeps out, Jesus welcomes home. And that's why he wanted to talk about his death. He knew this is my only ticket into the promised land. So this is the land flowing with milk and honey. This, oh, and that's what you accomplished. Now I see, and the resurrection and the ascension, and now you're gonna send out the church to win as many as you can, and then is coming the return and the setting up of the new heaven, new earth. Oh, thank you. See, tender moment. All right, back to the scene on the mountain. This, this, is, this is a lot to take in. Uh, whew, Peter, James, and John are seeing flash of horizontal lightning. Okay, he, the, 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 shining like the sun. The glory is being revealed, and there's Moses and Elijah, and they are they are awestruck. They are dumbfounded. And in that moment, when you are awestruck and you can't think of anything to say, you should probably just say nothing. Peter, however, can't do that, and so Peter is like some of Peter is like me. And when he gets nervous, he talks more, not less. So Peter can't think of anything to say. And so he says what is utterly laughable. At any point you engage what he says, it is ludicrous. Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Oh, thank you, Peter. Thank you for pointing that out. We were unsure what with the Elijah and Moses and the glorification of Jesus. Thank you. Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. Like, not for us, not for me and James and John. The, the tents are for you. We have one for you. At this point, James is like, just stop talking. No, no, we're going to have like three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
no, 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 you don't have to make the tents. Let us make the tents. Like, we would never want you to make. John's like, please, will it end? It's so embarrassed, so cringy. It's even funnier when you consider uh, who told Mark all this. It was none other than Peter himself. And don't you have to believe that Peter lobbied for Mark to include verse 6? Peter's like, yeah, but I didn't know what to say. We were all terrified. Mark's like, Peter says he did not know what to say. You should have been there. It was scary. I couldn't think of anything to say. To which Mark's like, then why didn't you just say nothing? Peter's like, that never occurred to me. Peter's brain is in neutral and his mouth is in drive. And he's off base on a couple points. First and most obvious, you're still thinking, remember, remember like a chapter ago when I asked you, Peter, who do people say that I am? Some say you're Elijah or like Moses or like John the Baptist, one of the prophets. Really, really? And now you see me and you want to make three tents. Three tents? How about one throne, Peter? Three tents. You still think of me as the same category as these prophets. What, are you going to make my tent a little nicer? You get, like, they're going to have tents, but I'm going to have like the tent GT. I'm going to have like air conditioning and like a nice, like I'm not in the same cat. How about one throne? Did you think of that? Moreover, Peter, and this is why you, the reason the disciples were so, it's like they, they had, they knew enough theology to be dangerous. And their theology, this is why they always seem to miss it. They believed that Messiah was going to accomplish everything in one trip. If you understand that, you understand a lot of what's going on in their heads. And it makes sense of a lot of the rest of the Gospels. They thought Messiah could do everything in one trip. So Peter has no category for a suffering Messiah. Peter thinks Messiah could just set up the kingdom now. Forget going to Jerusalem. Forget starting all that. In fact, some scholars think that this is happening during the month of Tishri, which is when the festival of booths, tents, tabernacles, same word, when the festival is happening. So forget going to Jerusalem. Let's just bring Jerusalem here. And once they say you, and once they see Elijah and Moses, dude, you, you could set up the kingdom right here, right now. Let's get this thing going. Let's get the millennial kingdom set up. It's going to be perfect. This checks all the boxes. Why all the suffering? Jesus, why not just set up your kingdom right now? Did you ever wonder that? Why didn't he? What's the problem with that? He could have. He could have absolutely set up that kingdom right then and there. Listen to me carefully. What Peter doesn't understand is this. If Jesus sets up his kingdom right then and there without going to the cross, listen to me, it would be a perfectly holy kingdom, a perfectly loving kingdom, a perfectly peaceful kingdom, a perfectly good kingdom, a perfect kingdom that had exactly zero citizens. (laughs) Do you understand? If he set up the kingdom without going to the cross first, the kingdom would consist literally of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not even Moses. He would have to turn and leave. Not even Elijah. He would have to turn and leave. God doesn't want it that way. He wants to create a kingdom with actual citizens. And so if he's going to do that, he must first rescue and redeem for himself and ransom for himself a people. That's why he came the first time as a little baby born in Bethlehem to grow up and suffer and die and be risen again for the sins of the world. At his next coming, he will come to rule and to reign and to set up that kingdom. Because he wants a kingdom that actually has you in it. And to do that requires... The work of the cross. 
So Peter's thinking wrong and wrong-headedly and mercifully God intervenes. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. <laughs> As in, stop talking, Peter. <laughs> I think it's funny that like in the book of James, he's like, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Looking at you. The cloud says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You know, God is represented throughout the Bible as a cloud. In the Old Testament, these predominant images, pillar of fire by, by night, cloud by day. The cloud symbolizes, of course, unknowing, other. The cloud would descend into the tabernacle. Oh, guys, God is here. God's glory is here. How do you know? This great cloud has shielded us from seeing him, but he's descended. They call this the Shekinah glory of God, and it would fill these tabernacles. The Bible says God dwells in unapproachable light. No one can see him. You might have heard that in Exodus 33, verse 20, uh, you cannot see my face and live, God tells Moses. I don't know if you're familiar with that scripture. I'm, I, I wasn't. John 1, no one has ever seen God, right? The idea, it's a cloud. You can't see him. You can't get close to God. If you do, you'll be destroyed. But from all this mystery and all this cloud, the cloud speaks and he says, but here's my son. Listen to him. In other words, you can know what the mysterious, unknowable God of the universe is like if you will listen to Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus Christ, through Jesus we can know the unknowable God. John 1 puts it this way, no one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who himself is God in close relationship with the Father, has made him known. Colossians 2 says it this way, Jesus Christ is the dwelling place of God's glory. So that in John 14, when Philip says, we want to see God the Father, they keep asking, show us the Father. Jesus says in John 14, 9, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When God wanted to show what the unknowable God of mystery and wonder is like, he gave us Jesus. Sometimes people say, I don't understand God. I don't know why God would do this or that. That's true. You'll probably never fully comprehend God, but in Christ you can come to fully know him. And not only know him, one last thing. When that voice spoke, Matthew adds an extra detail. When the voice spoke, and not only, okay, we can know him in Jesus Christ, but Matthew 17, when, when he tells the story of the transfiguration, says when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. When the unknowable God from the cloud speaks, terror falling on the face. Because I, I know people sometimes, they say things like this. When I meet the man upstairs, I got a few questions. I got a few things that need answers. When I meet God, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to give me some answers. Oh, naive friend. It will not go down like that. When you meet God, you will not stride up to him in your pride and demand answers. You will fall on your face in terror. God is not to be trifled with. Having said that, look at the next verse. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. Boy, that right there is a word for you and me on how to prepare for eternity. You better get this right. If you don't get anything else, get this right. You will meet God. And one of two things is going to happen. If you meet God without Jesus for all eternity, terror. That's it. Or you will meet God and Jesus touching you says what? Rise and have no fear. You can not only know God through Jesus, but through Jesus you can stand in God's presence.
he has made a way. He has bought you. He has redeemed you. And that means when you stand before God, oh, you know the disciples were glad Jesus was there. I'm so glad you're here, Jesus. We didn't know what to do with that. Peter just started, blah, 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 blah. I know, I know. And so Jesus just says, rise and have no fear. And when you stand before your maker, the only hope you have in all eternity, and the only hope I have is that Jesus stands with me. Rise and have no fear. Paid for you, bought you. You know, the, the, the musicians are going to come and, and lead us in a time of response. Brandon, you maybe lead us in a, a verse or two of a song. As, as they prepare, he prepares, however they choose to do that. You, 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 you know that this touched the hearts of, of Peter and James and John so much that at least two, I don't know if I can, I can make the case that James specifically mentions the transfiguration, but John and Peter absolutely do. John says, we've seen him. Our hands have touched him, handled him. We've seen the glory of the Father. Uh, and Second Peter specifically mentions the mountain. He writes, they never forgot this is my point. They never forgot this moment. Second Peter 1, he writes, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice came, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice from heaven because we were with him on that holy mountain. It's pretty cool to hear Peter's testimony. We're not making this stuff up, y'all. We saw it and we never forgot that. It was a glimpse of the future. God alone holds the future. This has been a crazy year. It's difficult to predict, but I'll tell you three things that are absolutely, absolutely certain. Christ will be glorified. Christ will share that glory. And through Christ, you can know and stand in the presence of God. That's what the Mount of Transfiguration is meant to tell us today. He will be glorified. Hang in there. He will be glorified. He will share that glory. Don't deny him. Don't turn around. Don't lose faith. And you can stand in the presence of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son. One final thing needs to be said, and it's verse 8. I told you it was a glimpse of the future, but alas, only a glimpse. Suddenly, just as quickly as it happened, it was gone. Looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. They then had to go on living not by sight, but by faith. So do we. But what was the walk back down the mountain like, you know? I told you at the very beginning of the message, the walk up the mountain, filled with anxiety, fear. I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know his plans. Oh, but once they saw the glimpse of the future, once they saw what's coming, they could deal with what was. And back down the mountain, they're talking, they're unpacking, they're thinking about what's happened at Jerusalem. It wasn't the end of the journey, but man, it gave them just enough, didn't it? It gave them just enough hope. That's the thing about hope. Hope can survive on almost nothing. But he had a glimpse of the future. They had a glimpse of what's coming, and it gave them the power for what is. How's your glimpse of the future? You need to get along with the Lord maybe this afternoon. You and Mark 9, and you just need to drink in again the transfiguration. You need to see what's coming. You need to let him remind you that he is coming. He is coming, and he is coming as a king of kings. So you get a glimpse of what's coming to give you strength for what is right now. Let's pray. God, grant to us, your people, grant to us, oh Lord, a glimpse, a proper understanding of what's coming. Set our hearts and our hopes and our affections 
not on things seen, but on things unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Grant to us, O Lord, this glimpse of the future that it might give us strength and power and hope for today. And if there's anybody here that doesn't yet know you, let today be the day. Don't let them gamble with eternity another day. Don't let them leave here without sorting that out. Grant this, we ask, in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.